Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi everyone, this is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about law keepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspaper men, and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches bustin' country and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, and today we'll be hearing from the greatest writer of 19th century America, and that would be Mark Twain. This is the narrative of a stagecoach trip that Mark Twain took across the country to some Nevada mining claims in the 1850s. It's a fantastic portrait of America at the time prior to the Civil War and what a wild country he was traversing. Now, uh, note, don't try to follow his geography because he is literally all over the map. But he does note Scotts Bluff, Julesburg, and Fort Laramie. So we know he was on the old Overland Trail, which is now the I-80 corridor, through Nebraska, and then sent to Wyoming. And I imagine, since they include Julesburg, that he also traversed down into uh, the Colorado Rocky Mountains as well. But anyway, enjoy. Now, Roughing It by Mark Twain, Chapter 7. It did seem strange to see a town again after what appeared to us such a long acquaintance with deep, still, almost lifeless and houseless solitude. We tumbled out into the busy street, feeling like meteoric people crumbled off of the corner of some other world and wakened up suddenly in this. For an hour, we took as much interest in Overland City as if we had never seen a town before. The reason we had an hour to spare was because we had to change our stage for a less sumptuous affair called a mud wagon and transfer our freight of mails. Presently, we got underway again. We came to the shallow, yellow, muddy South Platte River. 
with its low banks and its scattering of flat sandbars and pygmy islands, a melancholy stream straggling through the center of the enormous flat plain, and only saved from being impossible to find by the naked eye by its sentinel rank of scattering trees on either bank. The plat was up, they said, which made me wish I could see it when it was down, if it could look any sicker and sorrier. They said it was a dangerous stream to cross now, because its quicksands were liable to swallow up horses, coach, and passengers if an attempt was made to ford it. But the males had to go, and we made the attempt. Once or twice in midstream the wheels sunk into the yielding sands so threateningly that we half believed we had dreaded and avoided the sea all our lives to be shipwrecked in a mud wagon in the middle of a desert at last. But we dragged through and sped away toward the setting sun. Next morning, just before dawn, when about 550 miles from St. Joseph, our mud wagon broke down. We were delayed five or six hours, and therefore we took horses, by invitation, and joined a party who were just starting on a buffalo hunt. It was a noble sport, galloping over the plain in the dewy freshness of the morning, but our part of the hunt ended in disaster and disgrace, for a wounded buffalo bull chased the passenger Bemis nearly two miles, and then he forsook his horse and took to a lone tree. He was very sullen about the matter for some twenty-four hours, but at last he began to soften little by little, and finally he said, Well, it was not funny, and there was no sense in those gawks making themselves so facetious over it. I tell you, I was angry and earnest for a while. I should have shot that long, gangly lover they call Hank, if I could have done it without crippling six or seven other people, but of course I couldn't. The old Allen's so confounded comprehensive. I wish those loafers had been up in that tree. They wouldn't have wanted to laugh so. If I had a horse worth a cent, but no, the minute he saw that buffalo bull wheel on him and give a bellow, he raised straight up in the air and stood on his heels. The saddle began to slip. I took him around the neck and laid close to him and began to pray. Then he came down and stood up on the other end a while and the bull actually stopped pawing sand and bellowing to contemplate the inhuman spectacle. Then the bull made a pass at him and uttered a bellow that sounded perfectly frightful. It was so close to me, and that seemed to literally prostrate my horse's reason and make a raving, distracted maniac of him. And I wish I may die if he didn't stand on his head for a quarter of a minute and shed tears. He was absolutely out of his mind. He was as sure as truth itself. He really didn't know what he was doing. Then the bull came charging at us, and my horse dropped down on all fours and took a fresh start. And then for the next ten minutes, he would actually throw one handspring after another so fast that the bull began to get unsettled too and didn't know where to start in. And so he stood there sneezing and shoveling dust over his back and bellowing every now and then and thinking he had got a $1,500 circus horse for breakfast. Well, I was first out on his neck, the horses, not the bulls, and then underneath, and then on his rump, and sometimes head up and sometimes heels up. 
but I tell you, it seems solemn and awful to be ripping and tearing and carrying on so in the presence of death, as you might say. Pretty soon, the bull made a snatch for us and brought away some of my horse's tail. I suppose, but do not know, being pretty busy at the time, but something made him hungry for solitude and suggested to him to get up and go hunt for it. And then you ought to have seen that spider-legged old skeleton go. And you ought to have heard that bull cut out after him too, head down, tongue out, tail up, bellowing like everything, and actually mowing down the weeds and tearing up the earth, and boosting up the sand like a whirlwind. By George, it was a hot race. I and the saddle were back on the rump, and I had the bridle in my teeth and holding on to the pommel with both hands. First we left the dogs behind, then we passed a jackass rabbit, and then we overtook a coyote, and were gaining on an antelope when the rotten girth let go and threw me about thirty yards off to the left. And as the saddle went down over the horse's rump, he gave it a lift with his heels that sent it more than four hundred yards up in the air. I wish I may die in a minute if he didn't. I fell at the foot of the only solitary tree there was in nine counties adjacent, as any creature could see with the naked eye. And the next second, I had a hold of the bark with four sets of nails in my teeth. And the next second after that, I was a straddle of the main limb and blaspheming my luck in a way that made my breath smell of brimstone. I had the bull now, if he did not think of one thing. But the one thing I dreaded, I dreaded it very seriously. There was a possibility that the bull might not think of it but there were greater chances that he would. I made up my mind what I would do in case he did. It was a little over 40 feet to the ground from where I sat. I cautiously unwound the lariat from the pommel of my saddle. Your saddle? Did you take your saddle up into the tree with you? Take it up into the tree with me? Why, how you talk. Of course I didn't. No man could do that. It fell in the tree when it came down. Oh, exactly. Certainly, I unwound the lariat and fastened one end of it to the limb. It was the very best green rawhide and capable of sustaining tons. I made a slip noose in the other end and then hung it down to see the length. It reached over 22 feet, halfway to the ground. I then loaded every barrel of the Allen with a double charge. I felt satisfied. I said to myself, if he never thinks of that one thing that I dread, all right. But if he does, all right anyhow. I'm fixed for him. But don't you know that the very thing a man dreads is the thing that always happens? Indeed, it is so. I watched the bull now with anxiety an anxiety which no one can conceive of who has not been in such a situation and felt that any moment death might come. Presently, a thought came into the bull's eye. I knew it. I knew it, said I. If my nerve fails now, I am lost. Sure enough, it was just as I had dreaded. He started to climb the tree. What? The bull? Of course, who else? But a bull can't climb a tree. He can't, can he? Since you know so much about it, did you ever see a bull try? No, I never dreamt of such a thing. Well then, 
What is the use of your talking that anyway then? Because you never saw a thing done. Is that any reason why it can't be done? Well, all right, go on. What did you do? The bull started up and got along well about 10 feet and then slipped and slid back. I breathed easier. He tried it again, got up a little bit higher and slipped again. But he came at it once more and this time he was careful. He got gradually higher and higher and my spirits went down more and more. Up he came an inch at a time with his eyes hot and his tongue hanging out. Higher and higher, hitched his foot over the stump of a limb and looked up as much to say, You are my meat, friend. Up again, higher and higher and getting more excited the closer he got. He was within ten feet of me. I took a long breath. And then I said, it's now or never. I had the coil of the lariat all ready. I paid it out slowly till it hung right over his head. All of a sudden, I let go of the slack and the slip noose fell fairly around his neck. Quicker than lightning, I out with the Allen and let him have it in the face. It was an awful roar and must have scared the bull out of his senses. When the smoke cleared away, there he was dangling in the air. 20 foot from the ground, going out with one convulsion into another faster than you could count. I didn't stop to count anyhow. I shinned down the tree and shot for home. Bemis, is all that true just as you have stated? I wish I may rot in my tracks and die the death of a dog if it isn't. Well then, we can't refuse to believe it, and we don't. But... If there were some proofs. Proofs? Did I bring back my lariat? No. Did I bring back my horse? No. Did you ever see the bull again? No. Well, then what more do you want? I never saw anybody as particular as you are about a little thing like that. I made up my mind that if this man was not a liar, he only missed it by the skin of his teeth. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And now back to our story. Chapter eight. In a little while, all interest was taken up in stretching our necks and watching for the pony rider, the fleet messenger who sped across the continent from St. Joe to Sacramento, carrying letters 1,900 miles in eight days. Think of that for perishable horse and human flesh and blood to do. The pony rider was actually a little bit of a man, brimful of spirit and endurance. No matter what time of the day or night his watch came on, and no matter whether it was winter or summer, raining, snowing, hailing, sleeting, or whether his beat was a level straight road or a crazy trail over mountain crags and precipices, or whether it led through peaceful regions or regions that swarmed with hostile Indians, he must always be ready to leap into the saddle and be off like the wind. 
There was no idling time for a pony rider on duty. He rode 50 miles without stopping, by daylight, moonlight, starlight, or through the blackness of darkness, just as it happened. He rode a splendid horse that was born for a racer and fed and lodged like a gentleman, kept him at his utmost speed for 10 miles, and then, as he came crashing up to the station where stood two men holding fast a fresh, impatient steed, the transfer of rider and mailbag was made in the twinkling of an eye, and away flew the eager pair and were out of sight before the spectator could hardly get a ghost of a look. Both rider and horse went flying light. The rider's dress was thin and fitted close, and he wore a roundabout and a skull cap and tucked his pantaloons into his boot tops like a race rider. He carried no arms. He carried nothing that was not absolutely necessary, for even the postage on his literary freight was worth $5 a letter. He got but little frivolous correspondence to carry. His bag had business letters in it, mostly. His horse was stripped of all unnecessary weight, too. He wore a little wafer of a racing saddle and no visible blanket. He wore light shoes or none at all. The little flat mail packets strapped under their rider's thighs would each hold about the bulk of a child's primer. They held many and many important business chapter and newspaper letter. But these were written on paper as airy and thin as gold leaf, nearly, and thus bulk and weight were economized. The stagecoach traveled at about 100 to 125 miles a day, 24 hours. The pony rider, about 250. There were about 80 pony riders in the saddle all the time, night and day, stretching in a long, scattering procession from Missouri to California, 40 flying eastward and 40 flying to the west, and among them making 400 gallant horses earn a stirring livelihood and see a deal of scenery every single day in the year. We had a consuming desire from the beginning to see a pony rider, but somehow or other all that passed us and all that met us managed to streak by in the night, and so we heard only a whiz and a hail, and the swift phantom of the desert was gone before we could get our heads out the windows. But now we were expecting one along every moment and would see him in broad daylight. Presently, the driver exclaims, Here he comes! Every neck is stretched further, every eye strained wider. Away across the endless dead level of the prairie, a black speck appears against the sky, and it is plain that it moves. Well, I should think so. In a second or two, it becomes a horse and a rider, rising and falling, rising and falling, sweeping toward us nearer and nearer, growing more and more distinct, more and more sharply defined, nearer and nearer still, and the flutter of the hooves comes faintly to ear. Another instant, a whoop and a hurrah from our upper deck, a wave of the rider's hands, but no reply. The man and the horse burst past our excited faces and goes winging away like the belated fragment of a storm. So sudden is it all, and so like a flash of unreal fancy, that but for the flake of white foam left quivering and perishing on a mail sack after the vision has flashed by and disappeared, we might have doubted whether we had seen any actual horse and man at all, maybe. 
We rattled through Scott's Bluffs Pass, by and by. It was along here somewhere that we first came across genuine and unmistakable alkali water in the road, and we cordially hailed it as a first-class curiosity, and a thing to be mentioned in letters to the ignorant at home. This water gave the road a soapy appearance, and in many places the ground looked as if it had been whitewashed. I think the strange alkali water excited us as much as any wonder we had come upon yet, and I know we felt very complacent and conceited and better satisfied with life after we had added it to our list of things which we had seen and some other people had not. In a small way, we were the same sort of simpletons as those who climb unnecessarily the perilous peaks of Mount Blanc and the Matterhorn and derive no pleasure from it except the reflection that it isn't a common experience. But once in a while, one of those parties trips and comes darting down the long mountain crags in a sitting posture, making the crusted snow smoke behind him, flitting from bench to bench and from terrace to terrace, jarring the earth where he strikes, and still glancing and flitting on again, sticking an iceberg into himself every now and then and tearing his clothes snatching at things to save himself and taking hold of trees and fetching them along with him, roots and all, starting little rocks now and then, then big boulders, then acres of ice and snow and patches of forest, gathering and still gathering as he goes, adding and still adding as his massed and sweeping grandeur as he nears a 3,000-foot precipice till at last he waves his hat magnificently and rides into eternity on the back of a raging and tossing avalanche. This is all very fine, but let us not get carried away by excitement. But ask calmly, how does this person feel about it in his cooler moments next day with six or 7,000 feet of snow and stuff on top of him? We crossed the sand hills near the scene of the Indian mail robbery and massacre of 1856, wherein the driver and the conductor perished, and also all the passengers but one, it was supposed. But this must have been a mistake, for at different times afterwards on the Pacific coast, I was personally acquainted with a 130 or 4 people who were wounded during that massacre, and barely escaped with their lives. There was no doubt of the truth of it. I had it from their own lips. One of these parties told me that he kept coming across arrowheads in his system for nearly seven years after the massacre. And another one of them told me that he was stuck so literally full of arrows that after the Indians were gone and he could raise up and examine himself, he could not restrain his tears for his clothes were completely ruined. The most trustworthy tradition avers, however, that only one man, a person named Babbitt, survived the massacre, and he was desperately wounded. He dragged himself on his hands and knee, for one leg was broken, to a station several miles away. He did it during portions of two nights, lying concealed one day and a part of the other, and for more than 40 hours, suffering unimaginable anguish from hunger thirst, and bodily pain. The Indians robbed the coach of everything it contained, including quite an amount of treasure. Chapter 9 We passed Fort Laramie in the night, and on the seventh morning out, 
we found ourselves in the Black Hills, with Laramie Peak at our elbow, apparently, looming vast and solitary, a deep, dark, rich indigo blue in hue. So portentously did the old Colossus frown under his beetling brows of storm cloud. He was thirty or forty miles away, in reality, but he only seemed removed a little beyond the low ridge at our right. We breakfasted at Horseshoe Station, 676 miles out from St. Joseph's. We had now reached a hostile Indian country, and during the afternoon we passed Laparel Station and enjoyed great discomfort all the time we were in the neighborhood, being aware that many of the trees we dashed by at arm's length concealed a lurking Indian or two. During the preceding night, an ambushed Indian had sent a bullet through the pony rider's jacket, but he had ridden on just the same because pony riders were not allowed to stop and inquire into such things except when killed. As long as they had life enough left in them, they had to stick to the horse and ride, even if the Indians had been waiting for them a week and were entirely out of patience. About two hours and a half before we arrived at Laparel Station, the keeper in charge of it had fired four times at an Indian, but he said with an injured air that the Indian had, quote, skipped around so as to spoil everything, and the ammunition's blame scarce, too, end quote. The most natural inference conveyed by his manner of speaking was that, in skipping around, the Indian had taken an unfair advantage. The coach we were in had a neat hole through its front, a reminiscence of its last trip through the region. The bullet that made it wounded the driver slightly, but he did not mind it much. He said the place that kept a man huffy was down on the southern overland among the Apaches, before the company moved the stage line up in the northern route. He said the Apaches used to annoy him all the time down there, and that he came as near as anything to starving to death in the midst of abundance because they kept him so leaky with bullet holes that he couldn't hold his vittles. This person's statements were not generally believed. We shut the blinds down very tightly that first night in the hostile Indian country and lay on our arms. We slept on them some, but most of the time we only lay on them. We didn't talk much, but kept quiet and listened. It was an inky black night and occasionally rainy. We were among the woods and rocks, hills and gorges, so shut in, in fact, that we peeped through a chink in the curtain, we could discern nothing. The driver and conductor on top were still, too, or only spoke at long intervals in low tones, as is the way of men in the midst of invisible dangers. We listened to raindrops pattering on the roof and the grinding of the wheels through the muddy gravel and the low wailing of the wind. And all the time we had that absurd sense upon us, inseparable from travel at night in a closed curtain vehicle, the sense of remaining perfectly still in one place, notwithstanding the jolting and swaying of the vehicle, the trampling of the horses and the grinding of the wheels. We listened a long time with intent faculties and bated breath, Every time one of us would relax and draw a long sigh of relief and start to say something, a comrade would be sure to utter, Hark! And instantly, the experimenter was rigid and listening again. 
So the tiresome minutes and decades of minutes dragged away until at last our tense forms filmed over with a dulled consciousness and we slept, if one might call such a condition by so strong a name. For it was a sleep set with a hair trigger. It was a sleep seething and teeming with a weird and distressful confusion of shreds and fag ends of dreams. A sleep that was a chaos. Presently, dreams and sleep and the sullen hush of the night were startled by a ringing report and cloven by such a long, wild, agonizing shriek. Then we heard, ten steps from the stage, Help! 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 It was our driver's voice. Kill him! Kill him like a dog! I'm being murdered! Will no man lend me a pistol? Look out! Head him off! Head him off! Two pistol shots, a confusion of voices, and the trampling of many feet, as if a crowd were closing and surging together around some object. Several heavy, dull blows as with a club, a voice that said appealingly, Don't, gentlemen, please don't. I'm a dead man. Then a fainter groan and another blow, and away fed the stage into the darkness and left the grisly mystery behind us. What a startle it was. Eight seconds would amply cover the time it occupied. Maybe even five would do it. We only had time to plunge at a curtain and unbuckle and unbutton part of it in an awkward and hindering flurry when our whip cracked sharply overhead and we went rumbling and thundering away down a mountain grade. We fed on that mystery the rest of the night. What was left of it, for it was waning fast. It had to remain a present mystery. For all we could get from the conductor in answer to our hails was something that sounded through the clatter of the wheels like, Tell you in the morning! So we lit our pipes and opened the corner of a curtain for a chimney and lay there in the dark, listening to each other's story of how he first felt and how many thousand Indians he first thought had hurled themselves upon us and what his remembrance of the subsequent sounds was and the order of their occurrence. And we theorized too, but there was never a theory that would account for our driver's voice being out there nor yet account for his Indian murderers talking such good English, if they were Indians. So we chatted and smoked the rest of the night comfortably away, our boating anxiety being somehow marvelously dissipated by the real presence of something to be anxious about. We never did get much satisfaction about that dark occurrence. All that we could make out of the odds and ends of the information we gathered in the morning was that the disturbance occurred at a station, that we changed drivers there, and that the driver that got off there had been talking roughly about some of the outlaws that infested the region. For there wasn't a man around there but had a price on his head and didn't dare show himself in the settlements, the conductor said. He had talked roughly about these characters and ought to have drove up there with his pistol cocked and ready on the seat alongside of him and begun business himself because any softy would know they would be laying for him. That was all we could gather, and we could see that neither the conductor nor the new driver were much concerned about the matter. They plainly had little respect for a man who would deliver offensive opinions of people and then be so simple as to come into their presence unprepared to back his judgment. 
as they pleasantly phrased the killing of any fellow being who did not like said opinions. And likewise, they plainly had a contempt for a man's poor discretion in venturing to rouse the wrath of such utterly reckless wild beasts as those outlaws. And the conductor added, I'll tell you, it's as much as Slade himself wants to do. This remark created an entire revolution in my curiosity. I cared nothing now about the Indians, and even lost interest in the murdered driver. There was such magic in that name, Slade. Day or night now, I stood always ready to drop any subject in hand to listen to something new about Slade and his ghastly exploits. Even before we got to Overland City, we began to hear about Slade and his division, for he was a division agent on the Overland. And, from the hour we had left Overland City, we had heard drivers and conductors talk about only three things. California, the Nevada Silver Mines, and this desperado, Slade. And a deal of most of the talk was about Slade. We had gradually come to a realizing sense of the fact that Slade was a man whose heart and hands and soul were steeped in the blood of offenders against his dignity, a man who awfully avenged all injuries, affronts, insult or slights, of whatever kind, on the spot if he could, years afterward if lack of earlier opportunity compelled it, a man whose hate tortured him day and night till vengeance appeased it, and not an ordinary vengeance either, but his enemy's absolute death, nothing less, a man whose face would light up with terrible joy when he surprised a foe and had him at a disadvantage, a high and efficient servant of the overland, an outlaw among outlaws, and yet their relentless scourge. Slade was at once the most bloody, the most dangerous, and the most valuable citizen that inhabited the savage fastness of the mountains. Chapter 10 Really and truly, two-thirds of the talk of drivers and conductors had been about this man, Slade, ever since the day before we reached Julesburg. In order that the Eastern reader may have a clear conception of what a Rocky Mountain Desperado is in his highest state of development, I will reduce all this mass of overland gossip to one straightforward narrative and present it in the following shape. Slade was born in Illinois of good parentage. At about 26 years of age, he killed a man in a quarrel and fled the country. At St. Joseph, Missouri, he joined one of the early California-bound emigrant trains and was given the post of trainmaster. One day on the plains, he had an angry dispute with one of his wagon drivers, and both drew their revolvers. But the driver was the quicker artist, and his weapon cocked first. So Slade said it was a pity to waste life on so small a matter, and proposed that the pistols be thrown to the ground and the quarrel be settled by a fistfight. The unsuspecting driver agreed and threw down his pistol, whereupon Slade laughed at his simplicity and shot him dead. 
He made his escape and lived a wild life for a while, dividing his time between fighting Indians and avoiding an Illinois sheriff who had been sent to arrest him for his first murder. It is said that in one Indian battle, he killed three Indians with his own hand and afterward cut off their ears and sent them, with his compliments, to the chief of the tribe. Slade soon gained a name for fearless resolution, and this was sufficient merit to procure for him the important post of Overland Division Agent at Julesburg, in place of Mr. Jules, removed. For some time previously, the company's horses had been frequently stolen and the coaches delayed by gangs of outlaws, who were wont to laugh at the idea of any man's having the temerity to resent such outrages. Slade resented them promptly. The outlaws soon found that the new agent was a man who did not fear anything that breathed the breath of life. He made short work of all offenders. The result was that delays ceased and the company's property was let alone, and no matter what happened or who suffered, Slade's coaches went through every time. True, in order to bring about this wholesome change, Slade had to kill several men. Some say three, others say four, and others even six. But the world was richer for their loss. The first prominent difficulty he had was with the ex-agent Jules, who bore the reputation of being a reckless and desperate man himself. Jules hated Slade for supplanting him, and a good, fair occasion for a fight was all he was wanting for. By and by, Slade dared to employ a man whom Jules had once discharged. Next, Slade seized a team of stage horses, which he accused Jules of having driven off and hidden somewhere for his own use. War was declared and for a day or two, the two men walked warily about the streets, seeking each other, Jules armed with a double-barreled shotgun and Slade with his history-creating revolver. Finally, as Slade stepped into a store, Jules poured the contents of his gun into him from behind the door. Slade was pluck, and Jules got several bad pistol wounds in return. Then both men fell and were carried to their respective lodgings, both swearing that better aim should do deadlier work next time. Both were bedridden a long time, but Jules got to his feet first and, gathering his possessions together, packed them on a couple of mules and fled to the Rocky Mountains to gather strength and safety against the day of reckoning. For many months, he was not seen or heard of, and was gradually dropped out of remembrance of all save Slade himself. But Slade was not the man to forget him. On the contrary, the common report said that Slade kept a reward standing for his capture, dead or alive. After a while, seeing that Slade's energetic administration had restored peace and order to one of the worst divisions of the road, the Overland Stage Company transferred him to the Rocky Ridge Division in the Rocky Mountains to see if he could perform a like miracle there. It was the very paradise of outlaws and desperados. There was absolutely no semblance of law there. Violence was the rule. Force was the only recognized authority. The commonest misunderstandings were settled on the spot with the revolver or the knife. Murders were done in open day and with sparkling frequency. 
and nobody thought of inquiring into them. It was considered that the parties who did the killing had their private reasons for it. For other people to meddle would have been looked upon as indelicate. After a murder, all that Rocky Mountain etiquette required of a spectator was that he should help the gentleman bury his game. Otherwise, his churlishness would surely be remembered against him the first time he killed a man himself and needed a neighborly turn in interring him. Slade took up his residence sweetly and peacefully in the midst of this hive of horse thieves and assassins, and the very first time one of them aired his insolent swaggerings in his presence, he shot him dead. He began a raid on the outlaws, and in a singularly short space of time he had completely stopped their depredations on the stage stock, recovered a large number of stolen horses, killed several of the worst desperados of the district, and gained such a dread ascendancy over the rest that they respected him, admired him, feared him, and even obeyed him. He wrought the same marvelous change in the ways of the community that had marked his administration at Overland City. He captured two men who had stolen Overland stock, and with his own hands he hanged them. He was supreme judge in his district and he was jury and executioner likewise, and not only in the case of offenses against his employers, but against passing emigrants as well. On one occasion, some emigrants had their stock lost or stolen, and told Slade, who chanced to visit their camp. With a single companion, he rode to a ranch, the owners of which he suspected, and opening the door, commenced firing, killing three and wounding the fourth. From a bloodthirstily interesting little Montana book, The Vigilantes of Montana by Professor Thomas Dimsdale, I take this paragraph. While on the road, Slade held absolute sway. He would ride down to a station, get into a quarrel, turn the house out of windows, and maltreat the occupants most cruelly. The unfortunate occupants had no means of redress and were compelled to recuperate as best they could. One of these occasions, it is said, he killed the father of the fine little half-breed boy, Jemmy, whom he adopted, and who lived with his widow after his execution. The stories of Slade's hanging men and of innumerable assaults, shootings, stabbings, and beatings in which he was a principal actor form part of the legend of the stage line. As for minor quarrels and shootings, it is absolutely certain that a minute history of Slade's life would be one long record of such practices. The Vigilantes of Montana by Professor Thomas Dimsdale Slade was a matchless marksman with a Navy revolver. The legends say that one morning at Rocky Ridge, when he was feeling comfortable, he saw a man approaching who had offended him some days before. Observe the fine memory he had for matters like that. And... Gentlemen, said Slade, drawing, it is a good twenty-yard shot. I'll clip the third button on his coat, which he did. The bystanders all admired it, and they all attended the funeral, too. On one occasion, a man who kept a little whiskey shelf at the station did something which angered Slade and went and made his will. A day or two afterward, Slade came in and called for some brandy. 
The man reached under the counter, ostensibly to get a bottle, possibly to get something else, but Slade smiled upon him, that peculiarly bland and satisfied smile of which the neighbors had long ago learned to recognize as a death warrant in disguise and told him to, none of that, pass out the high-priced article. So the poor barkeeper had to turn his back and get the high-priced brandy from the shelf. And when he faced around again, he was looking into the muzzle of Slade's pistol. And the next instant, added my informant impressively, he was one of the deadest men that ever lived. The stage drivers and conductors told us that sometimes Slade would leave a hated enemy wholly unmolested, unnoticed, and unmentioned for weeks altogether. Had done it once or twice at any rate. And some said that he did it in order to lull the victims into unwatchfulness so that he could take advantage of them. Another said they believed he saved up an enemy that way, just as a schoolboy saves up a cake and made the pleasure go as far as it would by gloating over the anticipation. One of these cases was that of a Frenchman who had offended Slade. To the surprise of everybody, Slade did not kill him on the spot, but let him alone for a considerable time. Finally, however, he went to the Frenchman's house very late one night, knocked, and when his enemy opened the door, shot him dead, pushed the corpse inside the door with his foot, and set the house on fire and burned up the dead man, his widow, and three children. I heard this story from several different people, and they evidently believed what they were saying. It may be true, it may be not, give a dog a bad name, etc. Slade was captured once by a party of men who intended to lynch him. They disarmed him and shut him up in a strong log house and placed a guard over him. He prevailed on his captors to send for his wife so that he might have a last interview with her. She was a brave, loving, spirited woman. She jumped on a horse and rode for life and death. When she arrived, they let her in without searching her. And before the door could be closed, she whipped out a couple of revolvers and she and her lord marched forth defying the party. And then, under a brisk fire, they mounted double and galloped away unharmed. In the fullness of times, Slade's minions captured his ancient enemy Jules, whom they found in a well-chosen hiding place in the remote fastnesses of the mountains, gaining a precarious livelihood with his rifle. They brought him to Rocky Ridge, bound hand and foot, and deposited him in the middle of the cattle yard with his back against a post. It is said that the pleasure that lit Slade's face when he heard of it was something fearful to contemplate. He examined his enemy to see that he was securely tied and then went to bed, content to wait till morning before enjoying the luxury of killing him. Jules spent the night in the cattle yard, and it is a region where warm nights are never known. In the morning, Slade practiced on him with his revolver, nipping the flesh here and there, and occasionally clipping off a finger, while Jules begged him to kill him outright and put him out of his misery. Finally, Slade reloaded, and walking up close to his victim, made some characteristic remarks, and then dispatched him. The body lay there half a day, nobody venturing to touch it without orders. 
and then Slade detailed a party and assisted at the burial himself. But he first cut off the dead man's ears and put them in his vest pocket, where he carried them for some time with great satisfaction. That is the story as I have frequently heard it told and seen it in print in California newspapers. It is doubtless correct in all essential particulars. In due time, we rattled up to a stage station and sat down to a breakfast with a half-Indian, half-civilized company of armed and bearded mountaineers, ranchmen, and station employees. The most gentlemanly appearing, quiet, and affable officer we had found yet along the road in the Overland Company's service was the person who sat at the head of the table, at my elbow. Never youth stared and shivered as I did when I heard them call him Slade. Here was romance, and I was sitting face to face with it, looking upon it, touching it, hobnobbing with it, as it were. Here, right by my side, was the actual ogre who, in fights and brawls and various ways, had taken the lives of 26 human beings, or all men lied about him. I suppose I was the proudest stripling that had ever traveled and see such strange lands and wonderful people. He was so friendly and so gentle-spoken that I warmed to him in spite of his awful history. It was hardly possible to realize that this pleasant person was the pitiless scourge of the outlaws, the raw head and bloody bones the nursing mothers of the mountains terrified their children with. And to this day, I can remember nothing remarkable about Slade except that his face was rather broad across the cheekbones and that the cheekbones were low, and the lips were peculiarly thin and straight. But that was enough to leave something of an effect on me, for since then I seldom see a face possessing those characteristics without fancying that the owner of it is a dangerous man. The coffee ran out. At least it was reduced to one tin cupful, and Slade was about to take it when he saw that my cup was empty. He politely offered to fill it, but although I wanted it, I politely declined. I was afraid that he had not killed anybody that morning and might be needing diversion. But still, with firm politeness, he insisted on filling my cup and said I had traveled all night and better deserved it than he. And while he talked, he placidly poured the fluid to the last drop. I thanked him and drank it, but it gave me no comfort, for I could not feel sure that he would not be sorry presently that he had given it away and proceed to kill me to distract his thoughts from the loss. But nothing of the kind occurred. We left him only 26 dead people to account for, and I felt a tranquil satisfaction in the thought that in so judiciously taking care of number one at that breakfast table, I had pleasantly escaped being number 27. Slade came out to the coach and saw us off, first ordering certain rearrangements of the mailbags for our comfort, and then we took leave of him, satisfied that we should hear of him again someday and wondering in what connection. Well, they do hear from him. They hear of his execution at the hands of the vigilante committees of Montana, along with Henry Plummer. And with that, we conclude this reading from Mark Twain's Roughing It. 
Earlier in the 1001 Story series, host John Hagedorn gave a stirring telling of the Henry Plummer story. So for further reference, you can go back and look that one up. But uh, thanks a lot for listening, and we do have a couple reviews from New Mexico Gal. We have, thanks for continuing the Texas Ranger stories. While I enjoy the stories from Kevin Sykes, I knew I'd miss the Texas Ranger stories. But the great news is that we will have them both. And then New Mexico Gal goes on to praise host John Hagedorn for the proper pronunciation of a obscure bacteria. So good job, John. And thanks for pointing that out, New Mexico Gal. And we got another review from Mule Skinner 45 via Apple Podcasts. Love the show about the Yellowstone episode. I'm wondering if Sam Coulter is related to the John Coulter who was with Lewis and Clark. So it turns out, I believe that John Coulter and Sam Coulter are one and the same. I read many different renditions of the same story, alternately with John Coulter and Sam Coulter. Not sure why the author on the story I chose to use referred to him as Sam Coulter. There's not a lot of references given, but like you, I believe that that is John Coulter of the Lewis and Clark expedition. So there we go. Thanks a lot for listening. Leave us a review and come back next week and enjoy Texas Rangers in the meantime. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.